So welcome to the second in our series of lectures for the Edmund J. Safras Center uh, uh, for Ethics. As you probably know, I'm Lawrence Lessig, professor of the law school, director of the center, and I'm happy, um, or I will be happy, to introduce Professor Dr. Franz Adelkoffer to speak to us this evening. But before I do this, um, I'd like to set the stage for this lecture a little bit by reflecting a bit more on what, in fact, we've seen over these three years of uh, lectures. So imagine what we could call pattern A. And this is pattern A. A is a product uh, um, which is suspected to be dangerous. Research is launched to determine whether it, in fact, is dangerous. Among that research is the research of the industry that produces or profits from that product. That research indicates the product is benign. Years and years go by. A contest between the benign view and a non-benign view grows, and eventually it is determined that the product is, in fact, not benign. The industry was wrong. Its interventions delayed the public's proper understanding of the risk. That delay benefited the industry in the short run, at least. It hurt the public in both the short and long run. And once the truth is discovered, many people are kind of astonished that this truth, promulgated by people including scientists, could have been misunderstood like this. Now, obviously, pattern A does not predicate of every product in our economy. The vast majority of products are harmless. Some are even beneficial, I'm told, um, uh, to the public as well as to the producer. Nor does pattern A predicate of every product where there has been an allegation of danger. There are plenty of cases where allegations of harm were proved false and where the industry was in part responsible for proving them false. For example, the John Birch Society alleged fluoride would cause communism to spread throughout the whole of the United States. The fluoride industry was quite important in making us aware of the fact that might not be true. Okay. But it's equally obvious that there have been cases where pattern A has obtained. In the first year of these lectures, uh, Robert Proctor from Stanford told us of the story of cigarettes, which of course is the most pronounced example of pattern A. His book just coming out estimates 100 million people have died from cigarettes in the, so far, and uh, that at least one billion will die of cigarettes in the next century. No story better fits the pattern, pattern A than this one. But cigarettes, of course, are not the only example. Current OSHA administrator David Michaels in his book, Doubt is Their Product, surveys a gaggle of products from lead to asbestos and many in between in which pattern A is obtained with each of them. There is a common and recurring question. Wasn't there a better way to find the truth without the cynicism inducing uncertainty that we experienced? Now, when you read these cases or read of these cases, you might wonder as I do, whether we will ever learn, not learn in the sense of learn to do the epidemiological studies better, for that's really hard, and it's really hard to do that well, but rather learn in the sense of learn how to do the investigation in a way that can secure the public's confidence or the public's trust. For the lack of confidence about these questions is, I submit, or at least to be conservative, let's say, could be profound. And let me just flash one example to make this point. I'm going to show you a clip um, of Robert F. Kennedy spewing, with all due respect to this extraordinarily inspiring figure, spewing pure malarkey. What, he is going to show you, what you're going to see him say in this clip is totally 
false. I don't want any ambiguity about whether I'm endorsing what he says. Instead, I want to get you to get a sense of exactly why the problem we're talking about makes it possible for this kind of stuff to be spewed. So here it is. Here's Robert Kennedy. Um, but the science is clear. And what happens is I read the science at first. And there's literally hundreds and hundreds of studies that connect thimerosal to, you know, to these disastrous neurological disorders. Then I went, I talked to the scientists. Then I went and I talked to the federal bureaucrats who are defending thimerosal. And I said, what are you relying on? And I looked at the science they're relying on. And I can tell you, Joe, it is so weak. And you and I have seen you know, in legal practice with junk science. And we know, you know what these phony scientists are who create it this stuff. It happens in big tobacco. Right, tobacco. It happens in and big oil. Is, and this it's is, happening in global warming. And, and now it's happening in a way that's impacting is, our kids' lives. This is classic tobacco science. OK, so classic tobacco science. That has meaning has resonance in our society. And it allows people to say things as completely ridiculous as this. I mean, you know, put aside the actual falsities in the statement. There are not literally hundreds and hundreds of studies that show a connection between thimerosal and autism. There was one, and it proved to be false. Um, uh, so put, about, put aside that. The point is it plays right into a set of attitudes which are deeply destructive of leading the public to where the public needs to be on important questions. Now, the question before us tonight is whether we're seeing another instance of pattern A. Or more precisely, the question I'm interested in tonight is whether there's a way to pursue the important question of the safety of microwave radiation without falling yet again into pattern A. Or more precisely again, the suspicion that we are in pattern A. Our objective tonight is not to resolve the question do cell phones cause cancer? Our question tonight is to understand some of the dynamics involved in answering that question um, uh, and some of the, uh, what those dynamics might evoke with the discomforts of the contours of pattern A. Now, we have for the affirmative argument in that case um, a plethora of resources with us tonight. Um, we're joined by Deborah Davis, whose book, uh, Disconnect, argues quite forcefully that indeed we are in yet another example of pattern A with respect to these questions. Uh, and we will hear tonight a lecture from Professor Adelkoffer, who has experienced, and some would say suffered, a dynamic that at least fits within what I've called pattern A. Whether it does or not is a judgment you can draw, and how we could change the structures so that it doesn't fit within this pattern is the challenge of the project that is our lab. Um, so Professor Dr. Franz Adelkoffer received his doctorate from the Max Planck Institute for Biochemistry in Munich in 1965. And he pursued his postdoctoral work in internal medicine at the Freie Universität of, zu Berlin. From 1976 to 1992, he held a leading research and management position focused on smoking and health in Germany. And from 1992 until August of this year, he was the executive director and from 2002, a board member of VERUM, the Foundation for Behavior and Environment in Munich. His work is focused on the investigation of diseases caused by behavior and environment. And until 2004, he has lectured on this topic at the Free University, Freie Universität of Berlin. Between 1999 and 2004, Professor Adelkoffer oversaw the EU-funded research project Reflex, which was aimed at investigating the biological effects of electromagnetic fields. That research has become highly controversial, and our objective tonight is to understand a bit of the character 
of that controversy. I am uh, in particular grateful to Professor Adelkoffer for flinging himself from Berlin to speak to us tonight, and I would like to welcome him now to present his lecture and to begin this conversation. You have his notes for the lecture before you in case um, the challenge of uh, um, uh, the fact that we don't speak German is too difficult for some of you. Um, I love the sound of his accent since one half of my family is German, so this is a welcome uh, for me, but uh, to make sure everybody can follow, you can read along. So Professor Adelkoffer, I'd like to welcome you. Good evening, ladies uh, and gentlemen. First of all, let me thank you, Dr. Lessig, for your invitation to give a lecture on institutional co um, corruption at the Edmond J. Safra Center for Ethics. And especially, let me thank you for your kind introduction here. But I have also to thank um, Dr. Defra Davis uh, for narrating uh, my story in her book, um, uh, uh, which the title Disconnect. I think without her, I would probably not be here. Based on my experience gathered in the many years of research, I have come to the conviction that what cancer is, does do to humans, institutional corruption is doing to society. That is, what I would like to talk about today. Yeah. There is no technology that made its way as quickly and as extensively into people's daily life like wireless communication. Within only 30 years, the number of cell phone users increased worldwide from zero to about five billion. Since our knowledge on possible adverse effects of radio frequency electroma electromagnetic field is still rather poor, it is true that at present the biggest biophysical experiment of mankind is underway with uncertain outcome. This judgment is based on my personal experience as a scientist working in the area of radiation research for about 15 years now. Before that, I held a leading position in tobacco research in Germany for about 20 years. In both areas, it did not escape me how through violation of scientific principles, the financial profit was maximized at the expense of disease and death of uninformed people. Exactly the same as was happened with tobacco, may recur now with a reckless application of radio frequency electromagnetic field for technical purposes. And as with tobacco, the truth about the increasing state of knowledge has also been systematically suppressed. My personal story within the history of research on electromagnetic fields is only a tiny but certainly drastic episode that shows how far the industry is willing to go in order to defend 
its vested interest. Under research in action on your website, Dr. Lessig, um, I read that institutional corruption tends to involve mostly legal practices. I do not doubt this. However, I have to add that the industry does also not refrain from illegal, even criminal practices, if considered necessary. To structure my presentation, I would, I would like to go forward as follows. First, I want to report on how the, Europe, uh, the European Union funded reflex study was treated when the results were in contrast to what the wireless communication industry expected. Then I will talk about the quality of research data when funding is provided by industry or jointly by industry together with governments. And finally, I will inform about, uh, you about the development of exposure limits for radio frequency radiation that are from the medical point of view based on pseudoscience. The reflex study was a special annoyance for the wireless communication industry and, strangely enough, for the health politics in Germany also. The project was organized by the Verum Foundation in Munich when I was its executive director. It was carried out between 2000 and 2004 by 12 research teams from seven European countries. The funding of nearly $4 million was provided almost completely by the European Union. Two teams, one from the Free University of Berlin and one from the Medical University of Vienna, clearly demonstrated in human cells that extremely low frequency electromagnetic field as well as high frequency electromagnetic field have a cancerogenic, a gene damaging potential. Findings of this kind firmly contradicted the reliability of the valid exposure limits. When I assembled the Reflex Consortium, it was very difficult to find European research groups which were not in some way related to the wireless communication industry. And at the end of the study, I had to discover that at least two teams opposed the publication of our final report, claiming that they would not believe in the correctness of the data. Later on, I learned that both were financially supported by the industry for many years. From the beginning, the wireless communication industry was informed about the reflex finding. Our data were presented at all major international conferences on electromagnetic fields, and also at special meetings organized by the industry itself. Of course, we met criticism, which is always the case when decisions, opinions deviate. But it was no problem for us to contradict. Four years after the project had ended, 
in April 2008. I received a phone call from Professor Hugo Rüdiger, the former head of the Vienna team, informing me that Professor Alexander Lerke, member of the German Commission on Radiological Protection and professor at the Free Jacobs University in Bremen, a university heavily supported by the Vodafone Foundation. Vodafone is a telecommunication company which dominates all over Europe. Claims that the reflex data would have been fabricated. Lerkel, at present head of the Committee on Non-Ionizing Radiation in the Commission on Radiological Protection, came to the dramatic conclusion, and I quote, the results published by Diem et al., Diem is a member of the Vienna team, were, were indeed worrying. Should they be confirmed, this would not be only an alarming signal, but also the begin of the end of wireless communication, since damage to the DNA is the first step in the development of cancer. At that time, I had just submitted a new grant application to the European Union to investigate the effects of radiofrequency radiation not in test tubes as done in the reflex project, but now directly in humans. This was obviously the reason why Lerkel decided to act. Funding of the new study, which had received an excellent rating from the European Union's reviewers, should be prevented by putting on the emergency brake. With Wolfgang Schütz, rector of the Medical University of Vienna, and a journalist from the German weekly, Der Spiegel, he found the necessary support for a powerful campaign. Besides the prevention of the reflex follow-up study, another goal was the retraction of two papers which had reported on the gene-damaging effects of the radiofrequency radiation. Schütz mandated his Council for Scientific Ethics to investigate the case, and this council considered the fraud suspicion already proven even before it started to check the records. Already at the first meeting, it concluded that two papers must be retracted because of fraud. The decision was based on the accusation that a technical assistant, co-author of the papers, had fabricated the data. Some days after the meeting, with a bit bad luck for the rector, it became known that the chairman of the council was a lawyer employed by the Austrian wireless telecom communi communication company. Schütz had unfortunately, uh, unfortunately relied on the statute of his university that the identity of the council members remain unknown. Professor Rüdiger, head of the accused research team, who had already retired at this time, asked the rector to take the necessary steps that the council convenes again under a neutral chair and that he himself will be heard. First, the rector refused to do so 
but finally he conceded. Under the neutral chair, it became clear that the fraud allegations could not longer be maintained. To save the rector's face, who had already informed the public about the fraud at his university, it was proposed to Rüdiger that he should retract one of the papers, and in return the rector would not repeat his fraud accusations anymore. Quite reluctantly, Rüdiger accepted this proposal in order to limit the damage to his university, the rector, his former team, and of course himself too. But in a further press release, the rector repeated all the fraud allegations as if the exoneration of his council did not exist. As proposed, Rüdiger asks the editors to retract the respective paper, but the retraction failed due to the insistence of two co-authors who were independent from the rector. And finally, also the editors resisted because Lerkel's and the rector's motives had become too obvious. After a final press release, in which the rector speaks of a quick and unambiguous clarification of the case and again ignores the findings of this council, he finally decided to terminate the joint activities with Lerkel. So Lerkel had to act on his own, and he did. Be it by order or due to his delight for scandals, the Spiegel journalist, in close cooperation with Lerkel, published two articles in May and August 2008, unsurpassed in meanness and maliciousness. But read yourself. In the first one, under the heading Caught at Foul Play, he reports on the sensational turn the evaluation of the worldwide cited reflex study took. The second one was the reaction to the protocol of the Council for Scientific Ethics that did not find any evidence for the fraud allegation. In this one, under the heading, the professor's favorite, he complains that obviously science is not in the position to investigate such a grave fraud as the one in Vienna with its own means. This article adds a new element that is ridicule, the enemy. Illustration and text portray an old professor, my colleague, infatuated by a young, nice-looking woman, thus not noticing how she is fooling him. Of course, the story of the fraud in Vienna went round the world. Just two examples. Here, a report in science. And here, a report in the British Medical Journal. At the same time, Lerkel himself informed the scientific community in a series of editorials in the Labour Journal 
an online journal. Here is his opinion about the alleged fraud at the Medical University in Vienna that constantly grows over time. Here he repeats his accusation of fraud and then complains about the inability and unwillingness of science to purify itself from fraudsters. There were many more attempts to destroy the reflex results as well as the scientific reputation of their authors. A public workshop with the title Serious Research or Chunk Science, organized for Lerkel in Vienna by two industry-owned PR organizations in order to destroy the reflex results at the place of their origin. A folly of reproaches against the editors of the two scientific journals who refused to retract the reflex papers and a complaint about the refusal at the Committee on Publication Ethics in London. Ruthless attacks on the senior authors of the reflex data using an internet platform specialized in defining, in defaming mobile phone critics with methods from the gutter. Invention and distribution of the claim that the European Union would have asked the Vienna University to return the funds for the reflex study after that data had been fabricated. Finally, the request for an additional investigation of the reflex study through the All-Austrian Agency for Research Integrity that had obviously just been founded for this purpose. Needless to say, all these efforts failed. What are the motives which um, caused Lerkel to deal with the reflex data in this way? In his booklet titled Fraudsters in the Lab and their Helpers, Lerkel complains that he is suspected of acting on behalf of the wireless communication industry. Obviously, he is not aware that he himself confirms his suspicion by explaining his motives solely with economic reasons, while not losing a word about his responsibility to protect people from possible health risk. But read yourself. What I have shown are just a few aspects of a scandal that spreads light on a questionable network between the wireless communication industry, politics, the media, and science hired for the protection of radiation. Schütz and Lerkel failed in their attempt to retract two papers that accused that they, uh, they accused of fraud from the scientific literature. But the wireless communication industry has no reason to be unhappy about the outcome of their campaign. According to the saying, 
saying semper aliquiteret always sticks something. The gentleman undermined the reflex result in a way that they lost most of their significance. The campaign was also successful for the industry for reasons that are only indirectly related to Schutz and Lerke. While the two ethic committees exonerated the Vienna team from fraud accusations, both criticized the scientific quality of the papers, although they were neither mandated to do so, nor did they have the scientific expertise. They did it in order to protect Schütz and Lerkel in the interest of the institutions they represent. However, the authors of the Vienna Papers noticed with satisfaction that worldwide more and more research teams came up with papers that fully confirm their findings. Let me go on with the German research program and with some manipulation of data. Between 2002 and 2008, a total of 54 studies have been carried out within the frame of the German telecommunication research program. This program was jointly funded with about $23 million by government and wireless communication providers. It was designed with the help of scientists who closely cooperated with the mobile phone industry. There may have been a special reason for this collaboration of the industry with government. Could it have been that the more than $65 billion the government just collected from the mobile phone telecommunication providers for licenses, allowing the construction and operation of uh, the new UMTS standard all over Europe. The consequence of research showing damage to the human health either would either result in the economic ruin of several companies or in the, back, in the back payment of the money by the government. According to the government, the research program was needed due to several reasons. First, the radio frequency electromagnetic field was uh, uh, electromagnetic fields were increasingly suspected to affect human health. Furthermore, there were some indications that biological effects occur already below the current exposure limits. Today, the outcome of the program is the basis for the German radiation protection policy. Indeed, None of these suspicions were confirmed by the results of the research program. 
The conclusions are that there are altogether no reasons to doubt the protection provided by the current exposure limit. The existence of non-thermal effects as well as the validity of the so-called melatonin hypothesis could not be confirmed. It is, however, admitted that long-term effects in children and adults still wait for clarification. Considering the state of knowledge based on the results from international research, these conclusions are, in my opinion, misleading and sound even a bit cynical with regard to the fact that long-term effects in children and adults cannot be excluded at all. The wireless communication industry is not only interested in destroying the results from independent research group as done with the reflex data, it also takes care through its links to politics that results from the research they support finds the shortest way to the decision makers. There are numerous examples to prove this. I will show you just one of them. It is the annoyance of the telecommunication industry that more and more people try to stop the erection of new cell towers in their vicinity by citing sleep and other health disorders. These disorders are frequently explained with the so-called melatonin hypothesis. Since this hypothesis is a cause of unpleasant confrontations with the public, it needed to be refuted. To do so was one of Alexander Lerch's tasks within the German research program. The neurohormone melatonin is synthesized in the, in the pineal gland located in the diencephalon of mammals. It is released during the night, thus steering the circadian rhythm processes. A series of positive effects in the human body, especially the scavenging of free radicals for the prevention of cancer, is ascribed to melatonin. It seems to contribute decisively to the general well-being of people. No doubt, evidence of its inhibition of the synthesis through radiofrequency radiation would lend support to the melatonin hypothesis and thus create a considerable obstacle for the further expansion of the telecommunication technology. To study this melatonin hypothesis, Lerkel removed the pineal glands from about 500 dwarf hamsters and exposed the pineal glands for seven hours to radiofrequency radiation of increasing intensity. He concludes that his data do not support the melatonin hypothesis. In this case, the melatonin production was expected to be reduced after exposure to radiofrequency radiation. But what he actually found was more an increase of its production. Furthermore, based on his results, 
there is also no reason to recommend a lowering of the current valid safety limits for the whole body exposure. However, the diagram from the final report that he submitted to the German government seriously contradicts his own conclusions. At the left side, you see the effects of the non-modulated and at the right side, the effects of the modulated radiofrequency radiation with increasing intensity. For your information, modulated means this radiation is able to carry uh, uh, in information. Unmodulated means the radiation can't do that. After the exposure to both signals at 8 milliwatt per kilogram, see the upper row, the melatonin synthesis was obviously inhibited. Lerkel ignored this. Why? Because the data speak in favor of the melatonin hypothesis and even in favor of non-thermal biological effects. This is certainly not what he wanted to find. To give you an indication of what is going on under real life conditions, the whole body exposure of people in the vicinity of base stations is certainly below 8 milliwatt per kilogram. The data obtained with 80 milliwatt per kilogram and 800 milliwatt per kilogram see the two middle rows are correctly cited. There are the basis for his claim that the melatonin hypothesis could not be confirmed since there were either no effects or an increase of the synthesis, what in his opinion may even point to positive effects of the radiation. With 2,700 milliwatt per kilogram shown at the, low, uh, at the row uh, beneath, the signals worked in opposite direction. Non-modulated waves up and modulated waves down. This findings is of great importance with regard to the validity of the exposure limits, but has also been ignored. Why? The current exposure limits do not distinguish between the radiation from non-modulated and modulated waves. Obviously, Lerkel did not want to discuss this hot topic. I assume that this phenom phenomenon has been known, which has been known for decades now, will one day kill the current exposure limits in not too distant future. This phenomenon speaks clearly against the validity of this exposure limits. Altogether, there are at least three reasons which clearly show that Lerkel's experiments have no relation to reality. One, the melatonin synthesis is controlled by a steering system outside the pineal gland. Therefore, the melatonin hypothesis can neither be proven nor refuted by exposing isolated pineal glands. Two, 
From results obtained with dwarf hamsters, no conclusion can be drawn for humans, especially because of the, especially because the circadian rhythms are dramatically different. Dwarf hamsters get physically active when people go to bed. Three, the results do not support the author's convictions And everything has been um, ignored what didn't fit into his understanding. If at all, the data speak more for than against the melatonin hypothesis and more for than against athermal effects, thus contradicting the validity of the present exposure limits. Nevertheless, Lerkel's findings are still used in the German government by the German government to justify its policy for the protection of the public from radi radio frequency radiation. Now to the exposure limits based on thermal effects only. The discussion on possible adverse biological effects of the radio frequency radiation started before World War II. During the war, when the technical use, especially for military purposes, became increasingly relevant, even decisive for the outcome of the war, possible health risks were ignored. Hermann Paul Schwann, a German biophysicist who continued his research on biological effects of electromagnetic fields after the war in the US, played a leading role in fixing the first exposure limits. He claimed that there were no biological effects of radio frequency radiation besides the ones emerging from the temperature rise in tissue, since anything else contradicts the law of physics. In 1953, he proposed to the US Navy an exposure limit of 10 milliwatt per square centimeter, with which he was confident to prevent the rise of temperature in the human body. At this time, exposure limits were necessary only for the personnel in the armed forces and at certain workplaces dealing with radar. Exposure of the general population started only with the cell phone age. At this time, it was then assumed that people will reliably be protected if the exposure limit valid for workplaces is lowered by a factor of 10, that is to one milliwatt per square centimeter. Europe developed its own exposure limits, but applied the same simple thermal model as the US. Schwann's later view that non-thermal effects cannot be excluded with sufficient certainty was ignored. In the meantime, the industrial military complex had fully became, become acquainted with the potential of this technology and was determined to fight for its use. 
Since the radio frequency radiation from cell phones penetrates the human brain from the nearest possible distance at a much higher intensity as compared to the radiation from cell phone towers, exposure limits had to be fixed also for the near field radiation. For this purpose, the specific absorption rate was developed which can only be measured indirectly. A standardized phantom human head model made of plastic and filled with electrolyte-enriched liquid to adjust its electric, electric conductivity to that of the human brain is exposed to the radio frequency radiation from cell phones. A computer-driven field detector in the liquid provides the data required for the determination of the special absorption rate. This approach assumes that the human brain reacts to the radio frequency radiation in the same way as that material does. It does not consider that the human brain contains 100 billion living cells which operate and communicate with each other on the basis of electrochemical mechanisms. That these mechanisms can be misdirected quite easily by electromagnetic field has been shown many times. For a medical doctor, this alone is reason enough to deeply distrust the protection promised through the specific absorption rate that is solely based on physical deliberations but totally neglect biological considerations. The debate whether or not in addition to the undisputed thermal effects of the radio frequency radiation, so-called non-thermal effects exist, overshadowed numerous scientific conferences between 1960 and 1980 in the US and elsewhere. The problem was finally solved in the simplest possible way. Scientists who claimed to have found evidence for non-thermal effects were ridiculed and funding of their research was suspended. No doubt, the main obstacle for installing more conservative exposure limits was the pure desire to expand the use of the radio frequency technology, technology as far as technically feasible. This goal could only be achieved because scientists cooperating closely with the industry finally dominated the advisory and decision-making bodies. Thus, economic principles determined the installation of the US as well as the European exposure standards that are in force until today. At the end of the 90s, the World Health Organization started to attempt to harmonize the exposure limits worldwide. However, it did not have much success. The primary reason for the failure was the suspicion that the exposure limits represent more the interests of the industry than that of the exposed public. This suspicion was finally supported by organizations such as the US Environmental Protection Agency that calls the American standards seriously flawed 
partly for failing to consider the thermal effects. And finally, the European Parliament stated in 2008 that the European standards are obsolete, but even that did not change anything. Opposition against the harmonization of exposure limits came from China and especially from Russia, where six decades of research on biological effects of radiofrequency radiation produced a totally different picture um, and a different state of knowledge. Professor Karl Hecht, elected member of the Russian Academy of Medical Sciences, stated in a report to the German governmental institution in 1996 that the Russian exposure limits are more, much lower than that in the Western world, which are, in his opinion, based on pseudoscience. But applying today's knowledge to the, the Russian exposure limits also do not offer a reliable protection of the human health. Hecht, a retired medical doctor, with great merits in space medicine, is, like me, convinced that the currently applied parameters to determine exposure limits are generally unsuited to regulate the protection of the people from non-ionizing radiation, because they disregard the inherent order of biological organisms, especially the highly organized function of the human brain. I wanted to leave it out, but I can't go back. So, um, in, his, in this connection, I feel that I should let you know Hecht's personal experience made in this area of research. They are in no way different from mine. I quote, as I know, from 50 years fight for a real protection against electromagnetic field radiation that the advocates of high exposure limits do not treat their opponents with affection. I am sure to suffer in the future reprisals, slandering and discrimination. Proudly, I will fight these wheelings and dealings and I would be grateful to, grateful to receive the support of the ones I tend to help. How aware the Russian administration was of the biological effects of radiofrequency radiation was shown by the irradiation of the U.S. Embassy at very low intensities between 1962 and 1979 during the time of the so-called Cold War. Out of the four ambassadors in those years, Two apparently died of cancer or leukemia. One third of the embassy staff showed leukocytosis and chromosome abnormalities. A costly but secret research project in the US called Pandora was carried out to study the effects caused by this very low radiation intensity and to understand the reasons why the Russians did do that. As far as I know, the results of Pandora have never been published. 
US protest was, however, feeble because evidence of a fatal effects of the radio frequency radiation would have had severe consequences for economic, for the economic and military use of this technology. But the worst that could happen so far to support to supporters of the current exposure limits happened in May 2011. The International Agency for Research on Cancer classified high-frequency electromagnetic fields, including cell phone radiation, as possibly cancerogenic for humans. The decision was based on the vote of 30 invited scientists from 14 countries. Lerkel's participation was turned down because, a con because of conflict of interest. The same happened to another well-known scientist, um, Anders Albom, from the Swedish Karolinska Institute. According to the IARC panel, the results of epidemiological studies had been decisive for the possibly carcinogenic classification. These studies observed an increased risk for brain tumors after long-term, more than 10 years, and intensive use of cell phones. Results from animal studies, also of minor significance, supported the decision. However, results from basic research, like those from the Reflex project, that showed changes in structure and functions of genes in isolated human cells, but also in living animals, have not been considered at all. If that were done, the classification would not have been possibly carcinogenic, but rather probably carcinogenic. The classification of radio frequency radiation as possibly carcinogenic is a warning shot for the telecommunication industry as well as for the many governments on its side. Quite obvious, there are strongholds, that is, the national and international committees that they have filled with hired scientists in the course of decades in order to achieve their goals have been heavily damaged. The counter-offensive, which has meanwhile been started by these scientists, will hopefully not turn the development back to the time before May 2011. For example, Lattles claim that the IARC may with this decision have ruined its reputation as a scientific organization may provoke the opposite of what he intended. Hopefully, this will open the eyes of those politicians who are responsible for the health of people, so that they recognize that they have much too long followed the wrong advisors and with them the wrong path. Judge William Alsap from San Francisco most recently stated, I quote, the overall impression left is that cell phones are dangerous and that they have somehow escaped the regulatory processes. 
no doubt. The time has come to adjust the telecom telecommunication technology to the human organism, since the opposite way, which has been followed much too long, is impossible. To achieve this goal, politics must react to the following requirements. One, get rid of the biased experts in national and international committees on radiation protection. Two, ensure qualified radiation research by funding independent research teams. Three, lower the present exposure limits to the minimum just high enough to guarantee the functioning of the technology. And fourth, take and enforce precautionary measures that protect people. My conclusions. The Harvard Edmund J. Zafra Center is studying the sticky problem of institutional corruption. There cannot be any doubt that the present exposure limits of radio frequency electromagnetic fields owe their existence and especially their continuance to institutional corruption. It started in the 1950s with a close cooperation between governmental institutions and the military-industrial complex, nowadays extended to the wireless communication industry. Its goal has been and still is to expand the use of the technical potential of radio frequency radiation as far as possible. Scientific data that point to possible human health risk are considered to be unjustified obstacles that can be ignored. Above all, industry and governments can rely on cooperative media that help to appease the general public whenever scientific papers with critical results are released. On this ground, governments are in the position to support the further expansion of the telecommunication technology without considering precautionary measures and, oddly enough, without losing the general public's confidence in their institutions. The institutional corruption that is based on the close cooperation between industry includes certainly legal practices, but a second view shows also the good-nurtured cohabitation between industry and politics. The wireless communication industry has never been reluctant to feed their partners in the political arena with information suitable to support their vested interest. This one-sided information is created with the help of compliant scientists through misuse of science. Whether voluntarily or pushed, these scientists devalue any scientific finding that are not in line with the assumed harmlessness of radiofrequency radiation. Means applied are always the same. Data deviating from the accepted few are called junk science. Critical results are refuted by producing negative results, of course, generated with generous industry funds. And finally, 
in cases that are considered to be especially threatening, campaigning or wargaming, as I call it, is applied. The means are always the same, accusation of fraud and personal defamation of the authors. The practices of institutional corruption in the area of wireless communication are of enormous concern if one considers the still uncertain outcome of the ongoing field study with five billion participants. Based on the unjustified trivializing reports distributed by the mass media by order and on account of the wireless communication industry, the general public cannot understand that its future well-being and health may be at stake. The people even distrust those who warn. In democracies, it is a basic principle that above power and their owners are laws, rules and regulation. Since in the area of wireless communication, this principle has been severely violated. It is in the interest of a democratic society to insist on its compliance. And this is it what I wanted to, to, to do today. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. So as is our convention, we'll take questions. And um, I will acknowledge the person. And if you want to be on the queue, just get my eye and see that I've signaled that I've seen your hand. Um, so this is a law school classroom, so we can cold call on people if nobody asks. Francis? And I'm sorry, yes. And you can press the button, and you will have a microphone. Um, just on the, the science, uh, on page, I don't have a page number here, but it, it says with 2,700 milliwatts per kilogram, is that what this MW stands for, kilogram? The signals worked in the opposite directions, non-modulated waves up, modulated waves down, and you said that that should be considered. I just want to know, when you mentioned the eight, the figure of eight, um, you had 80, 800, and then the eight, milliwatts. Um, how far above the exposure limits of the ordinary citizen is the 2,700, or is it not far above? Um, I may not have got it right. Are you talking about the exposure limit of the general population? You, were, you, you compared this, the, the figures, the exposure limits used in the, the Leschel uh, studies I think it was Leschel, you said, who did these studies. Yes, Lurchell, Lurchell, with the exposure that people ordinarily have. And you at one um, point said exposure at signals at eight milliwatts yeah. is uh, far above. Yeah. And I just, the, the only area where you didn't mention whether it was far or below, um, where there was significant difference was 2,700 milliwatts. Is that above or within the range of what people are standardly exposed to? We have to differentiate between near-field exposure and far-field exposure. For the near-field exposure, um, we have a safety limits of two watt per kilogram. And um, this, uh, watt, this, these safety limits are subdivided um, 
if people are advised to be cautious to, uh, to 0.6 watt per kilogram, that should be safer than 2 watt per kilogram. But 2 watt per kilogram is the ordinary safety limit in Europe. In the States, the ordinary safety limit is 1.6 watt per kilogram. All right, so, so this is uh, still below that, and it did show results. This, that, that was important for me to know that there were actually results that were inconsistent yeah. with the data and uh, what was thought to be safe, yeah. right? Yeah. And, and that's where it comes in. Okay, so th the thing that I wanted to know was, um, again, this is a science question. Um, when these results came out, I happened to be at the NIH last spring in Washington, and we received an email, all of us who were working there in the Department of Clinical Bioethics, from the head, of, or used to be head, Ezekiel Emanuel, who I think is known to many people here. Um, again, bashing these results, because he, the point that he made was that if these res results were correct, the, the results in favor of the danger, basic science, not medical science, but basic physics would have to be altered. The view about what sort of things can affect the human DNA. And one of the reasons he was suspicious was because this was not a finding that was just at the level of biology, medicine, whatever. It would require a really deep, radical alterization of our view in basic physics. And I just want to know whether that is true whether, um, or that was just another scare tactic to make you think that this couldn't really be the correct data. Is the, the result of this data, would it require, in order for it to be thought to be true, basic changes in our view about physics? Yeah, that is, uh, what you are asking me that is under discussion. If you, if you look at uh, the epidemiological data, we have to assume that none of these persons who are using the mobile phone is exposed to a level higher than 2 watt per kilogram or 1.6 watt per kilogram. There are, some, there are some exceptions with children, for example. On the other hand, um, it is claimed that nothing could happen to these people, and in reality, we have many epidemiological studies which demonstrate that these people are at risk concerning the long-time exposure. Something must be wrong from the basic considerations. And therefore, my colleagues and I myself, we feel that the basic, that these safety limits are based on pseudoscience, that they have to be changed that uh, safety limits have to be developed based on biological findings. Can I, can I just interject? Yeah. I, think, I think Francis is asking a slightly different question. Mm -hmm. So I think what she's asking is the view that non-ionizing radiation cannot have any effect on DNA is the view that Zeke Emanuel was uh, asserting. And his claim, his argument against the possibility of these results being true was the only way non-ionizing radiation could affect DNA is if our basic understanding of physics was wrong. So the question is, yeah. is there a good, it, does it require altering an understanding of physics to believe that non-ionizing radiation could affect DNA? 
that in my understanding, we can't uh, use physics at all to uh, develop um, uh, safety limits because physics claims that everything is based on thermal effects. In reality, um, it is claimed that above two watt per kilogram, if we look at uh, the mobile phone, um, the heat is increased and uh, this might change everything. But this means also that only acute effects are of significance while epidemiological studies look at long-term long effects which could never be um, um, arise from uh, the present safety limits. In reality, they arise. There's a contradiction which is unsolved so far. Deborah, did you want to? Let me offer a clarification. Um, I didn't see this memo from Zeke Emanuel. Um, was he a member of the committee, or did he send it at the time because he was still in the White House? No, he wasn't a member of the committee. He was uh, out of the White House already, and uh, he was back at the NIH, not as its uh, bioethics, clinical bioethics, not as its director anymore. But, uh, and it was at that point that he sent the memo, with the, that explanation insofar as I remember it. Referring to the Nora Volkoff study that was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association when he wrote it? Um, I actually can't remember what he's referring to, but right. the point is that he said, uh, if I may, uh, I won't repeat what Larry Lessig said, but his claim was that they would have, that this view was connected to a radical revision in our notion of basic physics. Uh, it's true that physics doesn't tell us everything, that's why we have different levels in sciences, but nevertheless biology is not supposed to be in contradiction to physics. So the question was whether people's reasons for doubting the research has anything to do with his reason for doubting it. Not at all. I think there's a paradigmatic conflict at, at play here, and let me take a minute and try to explain it. Um, we understand that ionizing radiation works by breaking the ionic bonds that hold together the DNA. It, it disrupts it. Ionizing radiation is understood in the classic physics paradigm as disrupting DNA. Let leave together the idea of whether or not damage to DNA is required for cancer, which I'll tell you in a moment is not. But assuming that that is the requirement to get cancer, it is clear that ionizing radiation damages DNA. Non-ionizing radiation has been believed by the physics community to not be able to have that same effect, and indeed it does not, and that's where it gets complicated. Non-ionizing radiation doesn't break ionic bonds. There's nobody, I think, that would say that it does damage in the same way as ionizing radiation. However, and this is where Dr. Edelkofer's work is so important, and I should add, it's very important that um, Zeke Emanuel hasn't read this literature. I happen to know that. What he keeps saying is the same thing, unfortunately, which is it breaks the paradigm of physics. Well, now let me explain, as Dr. Edelkofer showed you, we're not talking about science, we're talking about institutional corruption. The fact that the science shows that non-ionizing radiation damages DNA is completely ignored by this, I would say, almost religious view, an epistemological view, if you will, that it's not possible within the domain of science for that to happen. Now, in fact, what Dr. Edelkofer's work has shown beautifully and supported now by others is the following. You can get damage to DNA from non-ionizing radiation. It has nothing to do with breaking ionic bonds. 
there are several different theories of what happens. One theory is that you get free electrons, and, they and you get them free because the resonance is disrupted, and we don't fully understand how that this happens. Another theory is that it is disrupts radical pa the pairs uh, may or may not be correct. But the fact is, it's not that you need a radical new understanding of physics. You don't. You just need to understand that non-ionizing radiation has biological effects. It weakens the blood-brain barrier. We know that from many different studies. For example, non-ionizing radiation today is being used to treat hepatocellular carcinoma, liver cancer, at levels like a cell phone. Non-ionizing radiation is being used to promote bone healing for, for, for bones that don't heal. Non-ionizing radiation from cell phones is being used in surgery uh, on veins. So if it's being used and has those kinds of biological effects, to me, it makes no sense, quite frankly, to assert that you need to change the physics paradigm, but you do need to realize that there's some very deeply held dogmatic views here, and it's more almost like a paradigmatic conflict than it, than it is anything else. And I, I'm sure people are entitled to those views, but the reality is the science, I think, which is why I wrote my book, is pretty, pretty clear. There is evidence that you can get damage from non-ionizing radiation. Now, let me just point out that about two out of every five carcinogens listed by the National Toxicology Program, the Board of Counselors, of which I was a member for some time, does damage DNA and does cause cancer. Asbestos causes cancer. There's no debate about it. It does not damage DNA. Great. Near. Thank you. Um, I have um, three questions for our discussion, not necessarily for you. I mean, the first one is clearly for you. But uh, so first, just a clarification question. Uh, can you clarify what the IRC um, means when it says that something is carcinogenic? What proportion of the population will get cancer? The reason why I'm thinking about this is that obviously we also save lives in a variety of ways by using cell phones, um, facilitates medical delivery, facilitates building tall hospitals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it's not obvious to me that if there is one, you know, once in a blue moon a cancer case. Uh, the other question, uh, second question is um, something more for us to, to think about together. Um, when, when, when there is doubt, when there is, I mean, even if there was not institutional corruption, there would still probably be doubt because there are studies suggesting things in different ways. Um, when is the right moment to uh, get the public uh, to hear about all these doubts potentially for the government to, or for WHO to tell the, the public uh, there is a danger here, some people. You might think that it's always good to disclose, um, um, but actually there are some sometimes bad effects coming from disclosure of something that later on you, um, you, you, know, um, you say, oh, actually that wasn't quite a correct suspicion. There could be, in fact, loss of trust in institutions, just as there can be loss of trust coming from non-disclosure. Um, anxiety, potentially, you know, over-screening, over-screening that can cause, cause cancer. We just had a chat a few minutes ago about mammograms and, and the cancer that they can cause. Um, 
et cetera, et cetera. So, so what, what, what should we think about the right policy about sharing all this uh, debate with the public? And thirdly, probably a question to other people in this uh, law faculty, more than for yourself. I'm just curious, obviously the tort system is not disincentive enough for the cell phone companies um, um, uh, that would deter them from doing the things that they are doing to um, um, bold, you know, brave uh, researchers like yourself. Why is that? Um, could potentially, one would have thought um, the fear that there would be suits from all these cancer victims in years to come would have been disincentive enough. Yeah, to, to your first uh, question, Philip. Then, um, IARC um, considers anything what belongs to radio frequency radiation, but their decision is so almost solely based on epidemiological data. Epidemiological data show that after long-term use, there's obviously a cancer risk. And um, this is, it varies from doubling the risk uh, to a five-fold risk, depends on the study which are available so far. And uh, we have asked uh, the uh, editor of uh, this summary volume, which will appear in January, January next or February next year. He says, we considered all the radio frequency uh, uh, the feeds from the lowest um, um, frequency to the highest frequency. Everything is summarized, but our knowledge comes more or less from <coughs> epidemiological studies. Um, yeah, therefore, they claim it's possibly cancerogenic. They do not say probably carcinogenic or proven cancerogenic to humans. Um, this is also the problem the industry is confronted with. They do not, they do not accept what um, IARZ has decided to uh, publish. Um, they uh, had hoped that the outcome would be the data which are available <coughs> do not allow any conclusion. That is the problem with um, IRZ was confronted with, IRZ had, I have said it already, not considered the basic research data. I think due to the defamation these data have been um, exposed to in the course of the years. And there are many data altogether. I think there are more than 100 studies which show biological effects below the safety limits. And um, so-called a-thermal effects. And these effects do not exist in the opinion of uh, the uh, industry. But, but uh, near, near is our, our utilitarian. So, so the question he's basically asking, I think we can recalculate like this. I'm not. If, if the worst case scenario is true, like the worst effect, biologic effect from this Niana is true, how, much, how many more people every year die in the United States because of that? Because Nier would say, you know, if it's 100 people, maybe that's okay because you're saving 10,000 people because you have cell phones. So yeah, do we have a sense of the order of magnitude, I think, is the uh, question. At the present state of knowledge, this can't be answered. Hmm. To the best of my knowledge, it can't be answered. Um, if, um, 
for example, um, Hardell from Sweden is right. He finds a doubling uh, in uh, of the risk um, uh, uh, he, uh, who are using the mobile phone for 10 years and more. In younger people, even a five-fold increase, you can imagine that the number may go up at to the worst what we could can imagine at the moment. But this is, in my uh, understanding, not possible to um, uh, uh, tell you. Uh, to, to, I can't answer so your question. Just if, if it were enormous, two times fold, it must not be enormous. Right. That is, the, my, my answer would be the risk can be very very high, but it can be low too. This gap between low and high, our data do not are not good enough to make a decision at the moment. If, if the it's five case, times, it can be it's five times what? The rate of glioma in the United States today is seven per hundred thousand. The rate of other benign so-called brain tumors, which can kill you, is twelve per hundred thousand. So there are more so-called benign brain tumors than malignant, but you can die from a benign brain tumor. So you could say, let's round it off and say it's twenty per hundred thousand. If brain tumors were to double, you can do the math, it's a small number. However, if they were to quadruple, because we are now having babies starting with using these things, it starts to get to be a much bigger number. And the fact of the matter is, the risk in a population depends on two things. It depends on the estimated size of the risk, double, triple, quadruple, and it depends on the exposed population. You've got 100% exposure effectively, and that is why Dr. Edelkofer is expressing the concerns that many of us share. Jenny. Maybe um, uh, one sentence more. Nick. The situation is that we uh, have an overview about 10, maximally 12 years, and the cancer development lasts 30, 40, 50 years. That means our children are especially confronted with a possible risk. One point. The next point is, if you consider the many uses of this mobile phone, even a 10% increase would be a real catastrophe. 10% increase, but not much. You could compare it to passive smoking, for example. Jenny. Um, two questions, one related to industry response, and the second related, it's just a general scientific question. The first question is, um, it seems a pretty low-cost way of decreasing exposure is to use a hands-free adapter. And I'm thinking, if I were sitting at a cell phone company and thinking what my response would be, why not just increase the marketing of, um, of these wireless adapters? I wouldn't have to admit liability in terms of you know, the danger I'm imposing to other people. It's low cost. I still preserve my market. Why do you suppose the, the cell phone companies haven't taken that angle? Um, and the second basic scientific question is, Bill and I were wondering, a lot of us have uh, wireless routers in our homes. So we're wondering, is this the kind of frequency, uh, sort of the, the um, electromagnetic radiation um, related to wireless routers, is that the kind of uh, radiation we, we should be concerned about? Yeah, so the, um, did you hear the first one? Yeah, yeah. Right. So the, the second question is about Wi-Fi. Franz, you can tell them to read the fine yeah. print. <laughs> then the problem is certainly what is the intensity 
we are exposed to. And uh, in my understanding, the real risk is certainly to use the mobile phone. Uh, for me, it's almost certain that this creates a risk to people who use it for a long time. And I think in the first line of children who start very early and who have the chance to survive any latency period the cancer needs to develop. The other question is, um, what about low exposure rates, for example, from cell phone towers, for example, Wi-Fi? It's very difficult to say something about. But what we know, I personally believe, that this may be very different, uh, different from person to person. There seem to be people who are highly sensitive to this kind of radiation, and others are not. What the outcome, uh, what the outcome uh, will be, um, that's we might know maybe in 30, 40, 50 years. For me, at the moment, it's a problem with mobile phones. They create, in my understanding, the highest risk. And there we have to start to think about what should be done. And here, the, tech, the, the methods used to create safety limits go into the wrong direction. Just, we're running out of time uh, problem here. You had a question, sir? Should be on, unless it's broken. Yeah. Oh. I just want to uh, add a comment, which really was given by a second uh, commentator here, concerning uh, the first. Uh, uh, question, namely, uh, we have to get a new laws of physics. No, no scientist would ever assert that you have to uh, develop a new law for a mechanism that you have no knowledge of. And therein lies the whole problem in this debate, is that there's no mechanism known, and that uh, creates a problem that, uh, that generates the kind of uh, disbelief that many of us have. Uh, and um, in that mode, uh, and related to your question, I guess, slightly, is there any, at the present time, different frequencies have been asserted over the last 50 years to have effects of this type, or of some type, and it's not always the same effect. Is there a frequency uh, window that is now believed to be uh, more? Have you tested different frequencies? What we know from basic research, there are windows. Um, uh, in which the radiation is more effective than in others. And what are those? But it never, it never has been used um, in the development of uh, um, safety limits. That is also something which speaks against the validity of the present safety limits. We can assume... Not validity, but... Yeah, but we can assume that certain frequencies, certain modulations, are more or less dangerous. Well, the fact they haven't been used doesn't speak to their in, uh, validity. It, it just speaks to their incompleteness. 
they're not adequate. So, but you're asking which are the good frequencies? Well, that's what I was trying to yeah. get out, but I don't, I don't know if it's known. Yeah. Is it known? You assert that they are such, but is that a... For me, it's known that there are windows which are more, the radiation is more effective than others. But research in this area is, in my understanding, maybe the industry knows more about that, but the, the science, the published science, knows there are windows, but doesn't know how these windows really work. Well, well, if you know the window, that's yeah. already something. These possibilities in, are, in my understanding, not studied enough because one has relied from the beginning on thermal effects only. Believing that there are only thermal effects, I can prevent, I can prevent really everything. Above a certain level, there's no increase in temperature, nothing can happen. Therefore, the present safety limits do not consider at all long-term effects, only short-term effects. And understandable only on the basis that they are based on thermal effects. And what we find that contradicts these thermal effects, we have effects in basic research in human cells, in animals, which um, are um, which are found far below the present safety limits. In our study, in the Reflex project, we have found the first effects at 0.05 watt per kilogram. That is one fortieth of the present safety limits. But in vitro experiments, it's difficult to uh, transfer um, uh, the results obtained in the tube, in the glass tube, to a human being. Okay, we have run out of time. I want to ask you to join me in thanking Dr. Adelkoffer for his lecture.